Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. But I'm very happy to welcome another good guy to our show, and that's uh, Jonah Goldberg. Hi, Jonah. How are you? Hey, it's great to be here. It is wonderful to have you on the show to talk about this book, Suicide of the West, How the Rebirth of Tribalism, Populism, Nationalism, and Identity Politics is Destroying the American Democracy. This book must be uh, six feet wide to get all those words on it. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a toothy uh, subtitle. Yeah. Uh... Is it, do, do your publishers ask you to write these subtitles? Because it seems every person that appears on the show has that. Um. You know, the title is negotiated, the subtitle is negotiated, it's, you know, an argument, you got, you know, my last book was called Tyranny of Clichés, which I, turned out to be a terrible title, it sounded like a sort of, sort of a steroidal style guide, um, but uh, um, at one point we had such arguments because the sales team um, just hated the title, and I was like, you know, why don't we just call it the... The uh, the tyranny of the Sentinel sales team, you know. Um, Jonah, but, uh, you're my kind of guy. You like to fight with people, don't you? They um, they put you know one of the reasons they get these long subtitles is because there's this theory out there that the more words you put there, the more opportunities that one of them will hook someone who otherwise wouldn't have gotten it. And I'm not sure I buy all that, but it does reflect my argument. So you know, whatever. There was a book that was originally titled this, though, right, a couple of decades ago. Yeah, there's one by James Burnham, um, which, and this is sort of an homage to that in some ways, because I, you know, he was an influence on me. But uh, it's funny; some people are very mad about me using the same title, and I try to point out to them: punch in, you know, almost any famous title of a book, and you'll find out that it's been used like a half dozen or a dozen times. Um, um, same thing with movies; you know, you get these. Movies that all share the same title, but anyway, yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk about some of the the, the premises that you lay down in the book, and we we've kind of had this um, shift in what we used to think was great. Oh my, who is that? Sorry, that's my doggers. Oh, so. good. I, I, I'm sorry. I love interviews where the dogs also want to talk. <laughs> I do. I never get sick. I love pets. So, well, you. A lot of things have been kind of turned on their head. You know, there's this demonization of of capitalism, and you call this the best anti-poverty program ever conceived. And and some people would say, oh, capitalism, it's ruined everything. But you disagree, right? Yeah, um, and I think literally all of the data and the facts are on my side here. If, if you take a big-picture view of it, right, so there's an overwhelming consensus among economic historians, sociologists, anthropologists, that for most of human history, the natural human condition, the natural environment for humanity was grinding poverty, punctuated by an early death, usually from either violence or some bowel-stewing disease. And then, and that was true for 250, 300,000 years, um, ever since we split off from the Neanderthals. And then once, and only once in all of human history, did that start to change. It began in England, spreads to Holland, spreads to Europe, spreads to North America. And so for 
7,500 generations, the average human being every, everywhere in the world, China, Europe, Asia, South America, North America, the average human being for 7,500 generations lives on average of about $3 a day. And it's, a, that, it's like a hockey stick chart. It stays flat like that for hundreds of thousands of years, and then once and only once does it start to take off, like, like a rocket. And it's doing that today. Today, we live in the greatest moment of poverty alleviation in all of human history, with hundreds of millions of people in Asia and Africa being lifted out of extreme poverty. And it's not some UN program that's doing it. I mean, that stuff helps. It's not bad, necessarily. But it's because of markets. It's because of capitalism. It's because of these ideas about the, the, the rule of law and the, the benefits of trade and innovation. And so when people say, why is there poverty? It's really a crazy question. We know why there's poverty. Poverty is the, is the factory preset of the human condition. As individuals and as a species, we're all born naked, penniless, and ignorant. The only interesting question is, why is there wealth? And there's only one answer to that, because it only happened once in all of human history. And it's this weird, quirky thing that comes out of England that America picked up and improved upon that has been generating this kind of prosperity for the last 300 years. So let's demonize America and make it seem like the worst place ever, right? A lot of people do, and, I, and, and that's part of our problem. I mean, I, I sort of end the book by making a pretty impassioned argument that what we're suffering from is a, uh, a crisis of ingratitude. You know, I have no problem. In fact, I, I, I fully support teaching people, talking about the legacy of slavery and, and how slavery was bad and all those sorts of things. That, that, I'm not for whitewashing our history. But the interesting thing about slavery in the broad sense um, is not that Western civilization had it. It's that Western civilization got rid of it. You know, the, the, the people want to point out about how the founding fathers were hypocrites because we had slavery and they didn't let women vote. That's fine. Point out that they're hypocrites. But you can only be a hypocrite if you're violating some ideal. Let's not throw out the ideal, which was that this idea that all people are endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights. And instead, what we're getting today is, this, is these arguments that the ideals themselves are bigoted and corrupt and designed to fulfill white supremacy and all that kind of stuff. And that is, what, that is the suicidal turn in our culture. Because if you start saying that even the ideals are garbage, the only place you can go is back to man's natural environment, which is tribal and nasty. Also, uh, people seem to be just fine kind of delegating over their sovereignty to government, and um, I don't know about you, but uh, the less of that, the better. But it, it seems that some people, it's like uh, the velvet trap for them. You know, they feel so comfortable. And yeah, I mean, it's it's. I hate criticizing the founding fathers, but one of the things I don't think they could have predicted was how both indiv as individual citizens, but also our elected leaders, aren't really that interested these days in being jealous guardians of their rights and their powers. You know, you've got individuals who just say, well, I don't care. Let the government handle that for me or let, you know, uh, or let Facebook handle that for me, you know, whatever. But you also have, you know, we have congressmen and senators who seem to have gotten elected solely so they can be pundits, so they can, like, get their hit on Fox and Friends or Morning Joe or something. And they love to talk about how they're outraged about this, that, or the other thing. They're just not that interested in, like, making laws, and, you know, they love to talk about how the president doesn't have the power to unilaterally declare war. 
But at the same time, they're not going to do anything about it. They just want the right to complain. And the founders envisioned a country that was going to be built, first of all, in this idea that citizens would be jealous guardians of their own rights, but also that our institutions would be jealous guardians of their power. And instead, all three branches of our government kind of want either the bureaucracy or a different branch to handle all the tough stuff so they don't get in trouble. I, I see by the literature that you say that um, that an undercurrent of corruption <laughs> appeals to our baser baser instincts. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so um, you know, so today when we talk about the word corruption, we basically mean you know graft or bribery or something, right? But that's not how the word works in the Bible or in Shakespeare or it worked in the human mind for most of human history. Corruption was this much richer idea, and it basically was. Nature. It was giving in to nature. It was giving in to, for human beings, it was for giving in to human nature was corrupting. That's why you had to have, because it is, take nepotism. Nepotism, you know, giving preferences to family, that exists in every single society ever studied anywhere in the world at any time. It is a natural phenomenon. We, for evolutionary reasons, we do favors for, first of all, for our kin, but also for our friends, because it's, a, it's, a, it's an evolutionary adaptation to be able to pass on your genes. That is normal. The way they do politics in Afghanistan, where, you know, you help your tribe over another tribe, and the idea of open bidding and that kind of stuff seems alien to them. That's natural. Our stuff is unnatural. And so what a civilization does is it, it, it tries to channel human nature in positive directions, right? And we, unfortunately, we live in a time where um, religion has much less of a hold of people's lives, where um, people are told constantly that their feelings are more important than facts, that the only authenticity they need to care about is personal authenticity. And that's inherently corrupting. You know, what Donald Trump is doing in office, whether you like it or don't like it, but the stuff about surrounding himself with loyalists and family, that's how political leaders operated in every society, everywhere around the world, up until about five minutes ago, evolutionarily speaking. And that's natural. The people who don't like it say, you know, you really shouldn't have your family, you know, working inside the White House. Um, because that's corrupting. They're right, but the corrupting thing is human nature, because what he's doing is giving into human nature. That's what we want to do. And, you know, Christianity, Judaism, um, uh, basic rules of society in general are things that hold human nature at bay so that we don't give in to our baser instincts. See, uh, Kennedy, Bobby, I was talking uh, to my family over Easter about this, Joan, and I brought up that point because there were people that were uh, derisive of what was happening in the White House. And I said, no, wait a minute, this is not new. Uh, FDR had uh, some of his kids helping him out. I mean, everybody seems to gravitate, like you said, towards their... I don't necessarily like nepotism, but I'm just saying you're right. It does seem like uh, a natural thing. Yeah, so, and and I, I... I, I think that it, it absolutely, I mean, the, the, the social science on this is absolutely settled. You know, nepotism occurs in every society. And I think it is a fine thing. It's even a good thing in certain spheres of life. You know, one of the, one of the core points of my book is that um, families do not operate the way societies do. They can't. Um, you know, in my fa- I'm a pretty right-wing conservative free market guy, but in my family, I'm almost a communist in the sense that I don't 
charge my daughter for food. I don't put price tags on her clothes. I don't charge her rent, right? In your family, it really is from each according to his ability to each according to his need. We do things for each other without asking for anything in return because the operating principle is love and loyalty and all of that. In the broader society, you can't operate a country of 310 million people that way. And so if you want to, be, you know, if you want to hire your son because you want to pass on the family business, that's entirely honorable to me. It is only when we do some of these things that are natural in the real world and then use government power to enforce them that you get into real trouble. What's your take on um, white supremacy or, or white privilege? So um, do I think that there are certain privileges and benefits that still accrue to people in this country if they're white, certainly in some places? Yeah, okay, fine. Um, um, but at the same time, I think that what the left is doing and how they talk about race and identity politics is deeply pernicious and counterproductive. You know, going around and saying that, you know, the white working class, um, simply because they voted for Donald Trump, that proves they're racist, right? When the white working class was at the center of the Democratic FDR coalition for 70 years, and no one cared to, no one cared to call them racist then, it's only when they do something that they don't like that they become racist. Um, to talk about you know, white privilege and white supremacy and say that all white people are racist, that kind of talk, right, this kind of... Uh, war on whiteness that you find on college campuses while celebrating every other kind of racial identity is bound to arouse, arouse a defensive reaction or backlash from people. And so we're seeing this in the data is that people are more, there are more and more white people who, who claim their whiteness to be central to their identity. And the reason why I can't stand identity politics is that it is, um, it's really this ancient thing, right? I'm not talking about ethnic politics. There's always going to be ethnic politics, and that's, you know, and it's good or bad depending on the circumstances. But identity politics basically has the same assumptions as aristocracy does, which is this idea that simply by accident of the circumstances of your birth, something you had no control of, simply because you were born black or gay or this or that, that somehow there are some people who are better or worse or more deserving than other people. And one of the greatest things about our culture and our civilization is this idea that you should take people as you find them. You shouldn't say, I know all I need to know about you simply because you're black or because you're white. And we're losing a lot of that in our culture as we sort of say that are, 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 are these abstract identities are the most important things about us. You are somebody who has not been in the... Um always Trump corner. You are somebody who has been critical. Uh, what do you think about uh, Donald Trump right now as we speak today? Because you know this is subject to change by nightfall, but what do, what do you think right now about him? Um, I, you know, I'll be honest. I, I, there, are lot, there are lots of things that he's done that I support, that I like. Um, um, uh, there's a debate you know, in Washington about whether how many of those things happened because of him and how many of those things happened despite of him, but that's a subject for another day. Um, I don't think he's a man of particularly good character. I don't think he models good character. Um, I also don't think he's Hitler. You know, I think the resistance types are making fools of themselves in some of their stuff. I always try to tell them, you know, look, you know, Donald Trump's not Hitler. Hitler could have repealed Obamacare. Um, and he's... Uh, um, I think he's his own worst enemy a lot of the time because he has very poor impulse control. 
And um, I think that uh, there's there are a handful of things I think only he could have done that are that I really support, and there are um, uh, a lot of things that I think another Republican could have done without alienating suburban uh, Republicans and millennials the way he has. Um, so he's a mixed bag. That's how I think about him. <laughs> For sure. Now you have a piece out about uh, Kim Jong Un not giving up his nukes. Uh, so you are not uh, of the mindset that everything is beautiful and we're going to put the uh, daisies in the uh, barrels of the rifles and everything's going to be okay, right? right? Yeah, Yeah. I, I, the idea that, that the North Koreans, you know, people don't appreciate that, first of all, the North Koreans truly believe that they need a nuclear uh, deterrent to keep the West or keep America from getting rid of the regime. And they have some good reason to think that after watching Iraq and Syria and, and Libya. Um but also, they've been telling their own people that the Americans um, are evil, that they have to have a nuclear weapon to protect themselves. So just for sort of domestic, quote-unquote, political reasons, very difficult to imagine how they're going to get rid of their nuclear program, particularly when they have such a rich and obvious history of lying about it in the past. Jonah Goldberg, author of Suicide of the West, would you ever consider being on with us again? Yeah, sure. Cool. Thanks. We appreciate it. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.